You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. I, uh, I think it's an interesting thing that the disciples, Jesus' disciples, the 12 in particular, the ones that were in the inner circle, because there were a lot more disciples than just the 12. Um, remember, Jesus sent 70 of them out in pairs. And so there were a lot of people that were Jesus' disciples. And followed him but the 12 in particular the inner circle those that were closest to him those that he had spent most of his time with I find it interesting that they had had grown up in an environment that that was strongly God focused they'd grown up and were living in an environment that that was strongly God-centered strongly uh, God focused and and they they lived in a nation that was a nation that was known as being monotheistic, which means they they believed in the one true God there was no multiplicity of faith there was no other gods that they worshipped at times they went off the rails but they, they they were known as particularly when they came out of the Babylonian captivity they were known as a nation that believed in one God the creator of heaven and earth. And they grew up in this environment that he was the true God. And they grew up in an environment where there was open um, festivals, open um, activities that, that declared the greatness of God, that, that lifted up the name of God, that, that focused upon who God was. They grew up in a culture that was very, very prayer-focused. Very prayer-centered. These, these Jewish disciples would have grown up attending the synagogue. They would have grown up being taught the word of God. They would have grown up being taught how to pray. And they, they were men who, who came from a religious background that was very, very grounded and rooted in, in God and who God was and who God is and what God wanted to do in and through them as a, a nation. But they had grown up in a culture of regular worship and regular prayer. Yet having been with Jesus for only a very short time, they ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. I find that's an interesting question coming from who was asking it. Considering their background, it's quite a fascinating thought that these people who grew up praying, obviously clearly being taught how to pray, was now asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. Have you ever asked anyone to actually teach you how to pray? I mean, be honest. Have you ever, ever asked anyone? In your Christian walk, will you please teach me how to pray? Have you ever been taught how to pray? Uh, you know, have you ever been pulled up in a prayer meeting and told that you're praying wrong? I, I mean, I've never had that happen to me, but um, I, I know when I did the new Christians class in this church 36 years ago, there was one night, one lesson of about eight lessons that was on prayer, and and really all I got was a few scriptures about. Prayer is talking to God, and, and, and I got the experience of the teacher who explained how they prayed. But how they prayed, was that actually the right way to pray? I, I, I can't remember exactly. I remember snippets of it, and it helped me along the way and got me started. But have you ever actually sought out on how to pray biblically? 
Or do we just pray the way we think we should pray? Or do we just pray the way perhaps we, we were taught as a child? Is it when we get saved? I mean, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a good home, but not a Christian home. And, 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 and there was kind of a, a little bit of a concept of God there, particularly from my mother, definitely not my father. He was a heathen, total, absolute heathen till he was 78 and gave his life to Jesus. And he's here this morning. So I'm, I just want you to know that. But there was, I remember Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories. It was a book that was beside my bed and it was all about Bible stories and things and prayer and so on. And I, I read that from time to time and, and I had a concept of how to pray. You ask God, what, tell God what you want. You ask him to give it to you and, and that's, that's prayer. And, and, uh, and I grew up with these concepts. And so when I got saved, I probably brought some of those preconceived ideas into my Christian walk and, and I prayed accordingly. You know, I, I would have thought, though, that these Jewish disciples would have known how to pray, would not have needed Jesus to teach them how to pray. Yet here they are asking Jesus to teach them a very fundamental activity in the Christian life, a very fundamental activity in following God. He's, they're asking him, teach us how to pray. Perhaps, like many of us at times, they had had come to experience, or what they had come to experience in prayer wasn't all that life-giving or challenging. Perhaps like us, they had, had come to experience prayer meetings that were mundane, that were boring, that were sleepy. I remember soon after I got saved, my first New Year's Eve as a Christian, New Year's Eve for me was a, a, a big night. I didn't. I grew up in the world. I didn't grow up in the church. New Year's Eve was a celebration, and a lot of fun, and a lot of wrong fun. <laughs> and here's my first New Year's Eve as a Christian in the church. And I thought, oh, I wonder what the church does on New Year's Eve. And they advertised in their Sunday service a watch night meeting. And I thought, oh, great! They've got something on. There'll be food. There'll be celebration. There'll be fun. There'll be interaction. It'll be exciting. I'll go. There'll be other young people there. I'll connect. And so it was at somebody's house. That should have told me something. At that point, it wasn't at the church. It was at somebody's house, which meant it wasn't gonna, wasn't expecting too many people to turn up. And and when I, I walked in, there was only two other young people there, and they were sitting in front of the television. And the rest of them were, were old, old, old senior saints in the lounge room <laughs> sipping cups of tea. And I walked in and I thought, where's everybody else? And I thought, well, it was only about 7 o'clock, I think. And I thought, well, they'll, they'll still arrive. And I didn't particularly want to sit with the old, 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 old senior saints because they were the real old senior saints. And they're the ones that prayed in King James. I tell you, they, they, you know what I'm talking about if you've been around long enough. And I sat on the lounge with these other two young people who I had seen in church but didn't really know. And, and they kind of weren't the most socially inclined young people. And so I sat on the lounge and watching the TV. And then I thought an hour went by and nobody else had arrived. It's now 8 o'clock. We're there for New Year's Eve. I thought there's four hours to go. I thought, maybe I'll just go and find some action somewhere else. And I thought, well, how do you go? How do you say, oh, it's time for me to go now? I was like, well, but it's a New Year's Eve. You stay till midnight. Everybody stays till midnight. So I said, and then 9 o'clock came, and we're sitting there watching. I don't know what it was. It was boring, but we were watching the TV. And I thought, well, at least this is better than sitting with the old, 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 old senior people drinking cups of tea. And then at 9 o'clock, the host came in and turned the television off and said, we are not here to watch television. 
we're here to pray. I thought, oh, oh, this is going to be good. So I went out and sat in the lounge room with the other two socially dysfunctional young people. And I sat amongst all, and then we began to pray. And the first one began to pray. Oh, Lord, we beseech thee. We thank thee for the year that has been. But, Lord, we seek thy presence for the year to come. And that was the prayer meeting for the next two hours. Meanwhile, I can hear all the parties out on the street. I can hear the the garbage tin lids being whacked and banged. I can hear everyone singing and screaming and yelling. And I'm thinking, that's where I want to (laughs) be. And it actually had a negative effect upon prayer meetings for me. Because there was no life, there was no power, there was no presence of God in the place. It was, it was a religious evening that did not entice me, it didn't draw me, it wasn't attractive to me, it, it, it was turning me off and, and it gave me really a wrong perspective on, on prayer meetings. And from that day on, whenever a prayer meeting was mentioned, it was like, oh, I don't want to go to the prayer meeting because I've experienced the prayer meeting in this church and I really don't want to go to a prayer meeting. Perhaps the disciples had experienced that in their journey And they had learned to avoid such prayer meetings. Perhaps prayer and results was foreign to them. Just like it can be foreign to many of us. Prayer and results can be very, very foreign to us. We pray, but not much seems to happen. I I do wonder if one of the key things that drew these disciples to Jesus in the first place was the fact that he got results was the fact that things happened. When Jesus prayed, things happened. When Jesus prayed, things changed. When Jesus prayed, bodies were healed. When Jesus prayed, eyes were open. When Jesus prayed, uh, you know, lepers were cleansed and ears were open and unstopped. And even the dead was raised when Jesus prayed. Perhaps they were drawn to him because when this man prays, something takes place. But in my journey and my experience of prayer, not a great lot has really taken place. And I wonder whether that's the experience a lot of today's Western church is we do pray because we know it's the right thing to do, but we actually go away disappointed because not a great lot seems to happen as a result of our prayer. So prayer and results are two foreign things that don't seem to go together in our, our prayer meetings. I wonder if they watched him pray. They obviously did because in Luke 11, we learn that he came back from a time of prayer and the disciples then said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. There's something different about your prayer life to our prayer life. I mean, we've been prayers all of our life. We've grown up in the prayer Meetings. We've grown up in the in the the synagogue, in the religious environment. We've grown up going through the processes of prayer, but not much happens. But listen, we're watching you, and when you pray, things take place. When you pray, you get results. And I think they were watching that this this man, the, the, the effective, fervent prayer of this righteous man was actually availing something. Just like James tells us that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But so many of our experiences is, well, I think I was effective. I think I was fervent, but it hasn't really availed very much. I think they were actually watching him and they were seeing that things were happening as a result of his prayer. You know, he would often disappear before daybreak. Mark chapter 1, I think it's verse 35. Jesus said, before, a long while before it was day, 
Jesus got out of his bed and went out to a lonely place and there prayed. And he would often frustrate the disciples because in the morning when the sun came up and the chooks crowed and breakfast was happening, the disciples would get up and say, well, where's Jesus? Oh, he's gone again. He's off praying. But then the crowds would soon gather around the house and they'd be looking for his whereabouts. Where's Jesus? Well, we don't know where he is. He was here earlier. He's gone. We've woken up. He's not here. And then all of a sudden out of the shadows, out of some secret place, out of some disclosed location, undisclosed location, he would appear. And they'd say, Jesus, the crowds are looking for you. So he would often, often engage in prayer. And when he emerged from those times of prayer, everything he touched succeeded. Everything he did prospered. You can't deny that. If you've read the Gospels and you've read them, every, every person Jesus laid his hands on was healed. Every person that Jesus touched, something significant happened in their life. There was something about his prayer life that was different to their prayer life because that didn't happen for them when they prayed. Remember when Jesus was on the mountain and, and he came down from the mountain and the disciples are trying to cast the demon out of the, the, the boy that was convulsing and, and, and frothing at the mouth and, and they couldn't do it. And the father of the boy says, well, you know, we, we brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't cast him out. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed, but nothing happened. And then Jesus steps in and he just, one word, one touch, and the boy's totally delivered. I think I know why they said, look, teach us how you pray. Teach us what it is that you do that's different to what I've been doing. And I, I want to challenge you today. Let's look at how Jesus prayed. Look, let's look at how he, he taught us to pray so that we too can set ourselves up to succeed. Because I don't believe for one minute that Jesus would teach us how to pray in a way that would not bring results. Do you? I don't think he would set us up, I just pray this way and then God will be happy. No, no, no. You want the results that I get? You want to do greater things than, than I do? Then this is how you should pray. And if you will follow this model, you know, it's, it's not a prayer that he gave us. It's a model. It's a pattern. It's a process. And he says, if you will follow this process and build this into your daily life, you too will see results in your life. I think if I'd grown up in a culture or religion of prayer, and was seeing very little results and then was walking with Jesus and seeing the results, I think I would have asked him to teach me how to pray. I think I would have begged him. You know, the prayer meetings I go to Jesus are pretty, pretty flat, pretty lifeless. But when you pray, something happens. I want you to teach me how to pray. If we would actually learn how to pray biblically, I honestly believe things will change in our life. I honestly believe we will see fruit. I honestly believe we will see breakthrough. I honestly believe we will see miracles if we will just learn how to pray according to the way he taught us how to pray. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, should be on the screen, we read, and when you pray, so he, he called, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 11, they specifically say, teach us how to pray. And here he gathers his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. And anybody else who was there wanted to listen in, you know, gather in. Let me, let me share something with you. He says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. You know, I don't think we have such a big problem with that in our culture today. Um, 
I don't think any of you go out and stand on the street corner and raise your hands and bellow. I think you'd get locked up if you did. Probably the guys in the white coats would come and I'd probably call them actually if I saw you out there uh, doing that because it's not common to our culture. But back in this day, it was a very common thing because it was a religious culture. It was a strongly religious culture and it wasn't uncommon for particularly religious leaders to stand on the street corners, raise their hands and pray. And Jesus knew the heart of these people. They were looking for the, uh, the, uh, the praise of people. They were looking for the accolades of man. They were looking to be, wow, you are so spiritual. Look at that man just there praying. And here we are sitting in McDonald's having our Big Mac. And he's over there fasting and praying and seeking. Wow, he's such a spirit. I look up to him. I, I aspire to be like. I could never be like him, but I could aspire. And all the while they're going, oh, listen to the praises of people that I'm so spiritual. Jesus said, don't be like that. Now, we don't have a problem of doing that on the street corner, but I do think sometimes in our prayer meetings we do. You know, I wonder sometimes when some, some of us pray in our prayer meetings, the language we use, the way we articulate our words, the way we express ourselves, is it, is it a show? Or do we actually do that at home, in the privacy of our, our own home? Or is it because there's a microphone to get an opportunity for someone to hear my voice, for someone to perhaps see that I am more spiritual than perhaps they thought I was? Whatever it is, Jesus knows the motives. He sees the motives. And what he's saying is, don't be like that. Don't do this to be seen. Don't, don't pray to be seen as spiritual. And, and he said, you know, people who do that, assuredly, you have your reward in full. You have no more. If you feel that blesses you, well, if that blesses you, good on you. But there's no more blessing from heaven coming your way on that. So God doesn't look at that and go, wow, you really prayed out there. That was bold. That was great. You went out in the street corner and did that. Wow, that was really, really good. I think I'll give you an extra blessing. No, you've got your reward in full because you did it with the wrong motive. But you, he says in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So what he's saying is, and I'm going to be really blunt here. I am really over the whole thing of I don't have time to pray. I just pray in the car going to work. You know, that's not how Jesus taught us to pray. He didn't say, look, when you pray, if you don't have time, when you get on your donkey to go to the blacksmith's thing down the road in Jerusalem, you just make sure you pray between there and there because I understand you're a busy person. You don't have time. No, he says, when you pray, he doesn't give options. He says, go in to your room. In other words, shut the world out. Shut out the distractions of life. Shut them out. Be intentional about it. You say, well, when do I get time to do that? Well, maybe it means you've got to get up an hour earlier. So an hour's less sleep. We'll go to bed an hour earlier. You know, look, look, really, it's not that hard. And he said, but when you pray, go into your room, shut out the world, shut out the distractions that are around you, and, and pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees you in that secret place, not people around you seeing how spiritual you are, but the father who sees you in that secret place, then says he will reward you. He will reward you. If we will get that pattern in our life and we will make it a spiritual discipline to actually separate ourselves and have a focused time of prayer in the presence of the unseen God and we are also unseen in that private place the bible promises here that rewards will come your way he will reward he will reward he will reward you that's what the bible says i believe the bible 
I believe it's a promise from God. If I do that, he will reward me openly. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they'll be heard for their many words. I've been in prayer meetings where we Pentecostals, I think we think it's Pentecostal, but I don't believe it actually is. The louder you shout, the more Pentecostal you are. I, I'm, I'm in a thing called a renewal retreat group. And once a year, I go away on a four-day retreat with other pastors. Most of them, there's about eight or nine of us, most of them are Baptists. So it's very Baptist, the prayer meetings. But you know something? I've found some of those prayer meetings to actually be extremely powerful because they're coming out of a heart that is hungry, a heart that is yearning, a heart that wants God to move. And it's in that quiet. I'm not, I love noise. Don't get me wrong. I, sometimes I do get a bit, oh, come on, let's get some life into this thing. But, but you don't have to be loud to be Pentecostal. You know, and sometimes we think the louder we get, the more God will respond. Sometimes we think the more we, we, we push in and yell and shout and repeat, God, we need this breakthrough. God, breakthrough. God, give us a breakthrough. God, you know the needs we have. God, we need you in Jesus. God, come. It's like we think, oh, he'll definitely come now because we've. But he's not moved by that. You see, you can't escape the fact the Bible teaches that he looks at the heart. And you can shout all you like, but if your heart's not inclined towards him, he's not going to come. Now, I, I do love noise, and I think there's a place for fervency. You can get so desperate with God. It's like the persistent widow who just keeps coming and knocking and knocking. You get so hungry and so desperate. I think God loves that as long as it's coming out of the right heart. But just getting loud and just repeating your prayers over and over, almost like you're begging God, is not going to move the hand of God in your life. It's just not, and Jesus says, do not be like that. Who think by their many words, they will be heard by God. Then he says in verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, for your father actually knows the things you have need of before you ask him. He said, well, why pray? <laughs> if he already knows, why can't he just give me what I need? Because he's after relationship. He's hungry for relationship. He's desiring friendship. He's desiring a walk with you. He's desiring to talk with you. He's desiring for you not just to talk to him, but for you to sit quietly in his presence and let him talk to you. He knows what you need before. So you don't have to come begging and screaming. You don't even have to come and say, now, how do I explain this, God? It's like, uh, just so you understand my situation. It's like, he's God, for goodness sake. He understands everything. He sees everything. In fact, he understands our need better than we do. We go, how do we explain this? Well, you're actually explaining it all wrong. Because from where I sit up here, your need's bigger than that or your need's different to that. And you've got it all out of kilter. So he's saying, don't, don't be like that. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. And this is where he teaches us how to pray like he prayed. How to pray effectively. How to pray and get results. How to pray and get breakthrough. How to pray and get miracles. How to pray and get heaven to open above your life. He says, therefore, pray in this manner. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, what's happened is the church over centuries has taken that now 
and repeated that as some kind of recital. Jesus taught us out of our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And when we finish, we go amen and we walk on and nothing happens as a result of it. Why is that? But that's how Jesus taught us to pray. It's because this is not a formula. It's a model. It's a, a picture of how we can formulate an interaction and a relationship with God. And, and I want to just, in the time we've got, break this down for you. He starts, when you pray, don't pray like this. When you pray, pray this way, our Father. There's the first point. It's an intimacy thing. It's, it's, it's an intimacy. You're coming into the presence of your Father in heaven. The Father speaks of intimacy. He speaks of protection. It speaks of, of oversight. It speaks of covering. It speaks of provision. You know, like an earthly father is meant to be the provider for his household. But in our broken world, separated from God, the father figure has moved so far away from the design of what a father is supposed to be. But God is the perfect father, the good, good father, who never moves from the perfect design of what a father is supposed to be. So a father is supposed to be a protector, a provider, a lover, a, a, a healer, somebody who comes around and nurtures and cares, but he's also an authority figure, somebody that father's spoken, so let's move in that direction. That's what a true family unit in the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And so Jesus has come to him as father. It's intimate. You're coming in under his covering. He who dwells under the shadow of the most high, he who, who will, will dwell under the... How does it go again? Who lives under the shadow of the Almighty shall dwell. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. So that's what this is talking about. It's talking about uh, Father, it's intimacy, it's closeness. It's generous, it's a warmth, it's a, it's a loving atmosphere. Come to him with it. But then he says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, I think the reason David, King David, became known as a man after God's own heart is because this is how he prayed. You see, he didn't really get caught up in the religious stuff of the law and the, and the, the, you know, the, the book of Leviticus and all the stuff. He, he, was just, he just yearned for the presence of God. He would lay in the, in the shepherd's field, the sheepfold. He would lay there at night while the sheep slept around him. And he would look into the, the vastness of a Middle Eastern sky and he would talk about the majesty of God, the bigness of his God, the greatness of his God. And he, he would write Psalms like Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 9, I will declare your praises in the heavens. You are a great and a good God. And that's how he would, he would just start his night and then he'd play his harp and he would sing and he would just worship God and he would focus on God. He wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on God and God said, there's a man after my own heart. And I, I honestly believe what Jesus is saying, if you want results in your prayer life, make sure God is first in your life. Make sure you develop that intimacy through the blood of Jesus. You come boldly to the throne of grace. You come boldly into the presence of God because you are a child of God. Once Jesus Christ has been received as Lord and Savior, and when that is done sincerely and you are bathed in the blood of his, his Son, 
You have the right to come boldly, not arrogantly, boldly and humbly into the presence of your God. And he's saying, if you come into the presence of the Father and you declare his greatness and you honor him and you acknowledge him as your God and as your Lord and as your Savior and you acknowledge his power, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and you declare his greatness, you get caught up in worshiping and adoring him. He's saying, this is how you should start your prayer. But what do so many of us do? Oh, Lord, thanks, thanks for this day. Um, yeah, look, you know that oh, I need that. Look, I don't have a lot of time today, Lord. I, I, just, I need you to give me that breakthrough. I need you to fix this problem. I need you to deal with that work colleague. God, I need you to deal with my wife. I need you to fix that. I need, God, there's so many things. God, will you just do it for me and help me? In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Because we've got to tack that on the end. Because if you ask anything in Jesus' name, he'll do it for you. That's what we seem to believe. But I think it's a wrong interpretation of Scripture. And it's not how Jesus taught us to pray. But that's how often we pray. We don't take time to worship God. We don't spend time just loving on him and adoring him and declaring not only his greatness in the heavens, but declaring his greatness around the atmosphere of our life. That's what we we need to do when we approach the throne of grace in prayer. Hallowed be your name. Keep it very, very clear in your mind who it is you are praying to. You know, you think, oh, prayer meeting, man, an hour's prayer meeting. Man, must be, must be half an hour in by now. Five minutes? Oh, man. Let me tell you something. You really get caught up in this. Just the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sometimes the whole hour's gone and you haven't even got to yourself. Because when you get caught up in that, the presence of God comes. Because he inhabits the praises of his people. And then when the presence of God comes and you get a real touch from heaven, you experience his presence, you go, oh, I don't want to leave. Oh, I'll just be late for work. I don't care what the boss says. That's what will happen. Now, he wouldn't really want you to do that. But you know, it's like time flies when that sort of thing takes place. Keep it very clear in your mind who it is you are praying to when you start to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So we've, we've lifted his name. We've come into the presence of our Father. We've lifted his name. We've exalted him. And now we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. And we, we quickly go over this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us a day of daily bread. We've missed the whole thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, Lord, I come today in absolute surrender to your will. I question whether much of the Christian Western church today is truly surrendered to the will of God. We truly do often treat God as a fairy godmother. Meet my needs. If he doesn't meet my needs, I'm not going to go to church anymore. Meet my needs. If he doesn't meet my needs, I'm not going to follow him anymore. I'm just not going to, no, I'm not going to read my Bible anymore. I prayed, that didn't happen. I prayed, I didn't get a breakthrough. I prayed, nothing, nothing happened in my situation. Nothing happened in my finances. Nothing happened in my marriage. Nothing happened in my circumstances. Nothing happened in my workplace. I prayed and nothing happened. It's like, it's, is it because you're praying wrong? Because in this prayer, it does talk about us. But it's down the list. 
So Jesus says, get everything in order first. Make sure God is at the top. Make sure God is your central focus. Make sure you know who he is and you acknowledge him for who he is. And make sure that you are declaring his greatness. And then make sure that you come in a posture of surrender to his will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. And when we start to do that and we start to to see that, that, that he has to come first. Instead of us coming into our prayer room with our list of needs, we need to make sure we connect with God and and Him before we look at what we want and what we need. Because He knows our needs even before we ask. Before we get to me and my needs, we first need to get to Him. And if we don't get to Him, there's no point praying anymore. I hope this is not offensive. You know, we need to make sure we are not in the prayer closet to bend him towards our will. But we need to be in the prayer closet to make sure we are bending towards his will. Thank you. Shame not everybody clapped because that is so life-changing. If we just got in the prayer closet endeavoring to bend towards his will, God, I'm not here with my needs today. I'm here because I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. And you know something? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But it doesn't end there. It actually goes on and says, they are higher than our ways. In other words, they are better. They are much better. They are much more life-changing. They are much more fulfilling than what we think we need. So let's go into the prayer closet, bending towards his will. You know, our lives would be more fruitful and fulfilled if we lived daily bending in his direction rather than trying to get him to bend in ours. Sometimes when we pray, we definitely have needs, genuine, desperate needs. Sometimes we have, have, have bondages, oppression, fears and phobias and issues that so, so debilitate us. Sometimes we have loved ones that have gone astray, particularly if you're a parent and you've got teenage kids and they've gone off the rails, they're not following Jesus anymore or they're they're dabbling in the world of drugs or drinking or whatever it might be and and they're legitimate concerns, legitimate fears. But let me tell you something, if you come into his presence and leave that aside because he knows about that, don't think, oh, I've I've got to tell him about this quick before something bad happens so he can intervene. He already knows. And so he wants you to just come into his presence and put those needs aside. As legitimate as those needs are, there will come a time in in the process of the model of the prayer. But when we come with our list, I've got all these needs. But before we get to that, Lord, I want to get to you. If we would only do that, I think we would actually see more results in our life. And what you are trying to get God to do for you right now might might not actually be what he wants to do for you right now. There might be something different that he wants to do. It might take longer to actually do it. It might be a process that he wants to take you through so that the higher thing that he's got in mind for you is going to be far better than what you think if you can just get this quick fix now. And that's what following Jesus is all about. Though I go through the valley of the shadow, what am I doing in this dark place? Well, he may have just led you through that. But when you go through that valley, you will fear no evil because he's with you. His rod, his staff, they comfort you. They guide you. God, I have all these needs. But before I get to my list of needs, God, I want to get to you. 
I want to get to you. I want to get to your presence. And I want you to know that I am absolutely surrendered to you and your purpose, your kingdom, your ways, your will. I want to do life from a posture of absolute surrender to whatever you want. Like Mary said, when the angel came and said, you are pregnant with the Messiah, she said, be it done to me according to your will. Now, I don't have time to go into this. I have preached on it before. But you might think, oh, that would have been easy to say, be it done to me according to your will. But you understood the culture of the time. For her to be pregnant outside of wedlock, she would have been stoned. So you would have said, pick somebody else. I don't want this. Who's going to believe me? An angel came. You know, it's like, no, she just said, be it done to me according to your will. I will surrender to your purpose. And as you know, she was protected the whole way through. Till we can sincerely come to that place of surrender to his will before our will. Oh, I'd say this sensitively. I don't think there's any point praying any further. I really don't. And that's why I think we live disappointed lives. That's why I think as we sang, he's a God of miracles. Well, where's my miracle? Well, perhaps you embrace this model in the middle instead of at the beginning. Perhaps your lifestyle is not one of inclining and leaning into God. Your lifestyle is so self-centered that I want God to just do what I want when I want him to do it. I don't want him to interfere with my lifestyle. I want him to just do what I want when I want. And I think so. We would never admit that, but I think our actions say that that is how we are actually living at times. But once we've come to that place of surrender to the will of God, then we can say, give us this day our daily bread. And that covers our needs. Our desires, our wants. You know, this was very significant to those Jewish disciples. Give us this day our daily bread. That spoke to them very clearly. They knew what he was referring to. It was the manna in the wilderness. The daily provision of bread. When they were traveling through the wilderness, remember it was fresh every morning. Don't keep any overnight. I will provide for you. But some of them didn't trust God to provide the next day. So they gathered more and it rotted and went moldy. And they had all kinds of maggots in their house or their tent. Give us this day our daily bread. It's an acknowledgement that you are our provider. You are my provider. You are Jehovah Jireh. You know, and, and it's an acknowledgement that, that, and he said to them, you know, when you come into the land that I'm taking you to, you will actually accumulate such incredible wealth that other nations will come and buy from you and borrow from you. You will be a provider to other nations. And he said, the danger of when that happens is you will forget me. You will forget that I'm the provider. You will forget the manna, the daily bread that I gave you. And you will forget that it's me that actually gives you the power to get wealth. And he's saying, you remember when you come into that land, don't you forget me. Because I am the provider. And all of a sudden, when things go well, and things aren't such a struggle anymore, and the money's flowing, and the family's happy, and the wife's happy, and everybody's doing well around us, we can tend to just say, oh, I don't need to pray today. I don't need to do this. And then all of a sudden, there's a crisis. The amount of times as a Christian leader, I have seen Christians not be in church for weeks on end. And then all of a sudden, you hear they've got some sickness, or they're in crisis. Next minute, they're in church. They're at the altar call, and they're in church Sunday after Sunday until they get their breakthrough, and then you don't see them again i have seen that so often it's because we we pray wrong if we live life out of out of intimacy with him if we live life out of an acknowledgement of his greatness and if we live life out of that whole sense of of he is my provider all the time and i'm surrendered to his will we will get breakthroughs and it's at this point give us our day our daily bread we make our Simply make our requests known to God. And you know, I think what God does is he goes, yeah, I, I knew you had that problem. 
but I'm so pleased that we are so close that you can talk to me about it. That's what I think happens. Because he already knows. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the thanksgiving thing, it's again, it comes back to that acknowledgement of who he is and his greatness and, and what he's already done in your life. And it's that, just let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God will surpass your understanding. It doesn't go on and say, and he will fulfill them immediately. It just says, just let them be made known to God. Trust him to provide the bread the next day. Don't gather it in case I haven't got enough for tomorrow and then it'll all go bad in your hand. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, we come into the presence of God. Sometimes we have to deal with stuff. Sometimes we have to say, God, I, I really have messed up. I need you to forgive me. God, I did the wrong thing. I went off the rails. I had a weak moment and I succumbed to temptation. And I, God, I need you to forgive me. And often I have prayer time like that. But he doesn't say, come and ask me for forgiveness. He says, when you ask for forgiveness... Ask this way, forgive me in the same way that I forgive those who have hurt me. You say, but, but because we don't want to do that, we go, oh God, just forgive me, wash me clean, and let me be right with you, and then we move on our way. Nothing happens because we're praying wrong. Does this make sense? We are praying wrong. He's saying, forgive me in the same... He's not even saying, uh, you know, ask God to forgive you and then say, help me to forgive them. He's saying, no, just forgive me to the same level as I've forgiven those who have hurt me. That's scary. Because I think, I don't want God to forgive me to the level I've forgiven some people in my life. I want him to abundantly forgive me. And what he's saying is, well, to the level you want me to forgive you, that's the level you need to forgive those who have hurt you and wronged you in your life. You know, it's very easy to ask God for forgiveness, but not so easy to extend forgiveness to those we feel have wronged us. But Jesus teaches us to pray this way if we want results. This is just the Bible. Do not lead us into temptation because we are very good at finding that for ourselves. But deliver us... No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> but you do wonder why it actually says, do not lead us into temptation. It's like... Because there's so much around us. There's so much out there. We can find that very easily on our own. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I, you know, so often I used to think this was, keep me from the devil. Keep, keep me from the devil blocking my path to my future. Keep me from the devil you know, sabotaging my finances. Keep the devil away. God, keep me from the evil one. Protect me from the evil one. Keep me from, from, from being sabotaged in a way that it derails my, my journey, my walk. God, keep, but it's not really inferring that. It's a part of it. But it's also saying, keep me from evil conduct. You, you know, leave me not into temptation. But deliver me from evil. It's not two separate. It's, they're linked. It's like, lead me not into temptation. Temptation is to do something that's ungodly, something that is wrong, something that is sinful, something that is unbiblical. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. So in other words, God, deliver me from the temptation to gossip. I heard something really interesting recently. Gossip is like spiritual pornography. It gives you a very quick feel-good, but you don't have to engage with the person you're gossiping about. That's what actual pornography is. 
It's a feel good sexually without having to engage in, in a relationship with the person that you're lusting over. And, and gossip is like spiritual pornography. It's, it's a feel good. Oh, I like to be able to just share this with you. And it's like we get a good feeling. And particularly if it, if it makes us look good and the other person look bad, it's pornography. To feel good without having to relate with the person instead of being biblical and going dealing with the relationship breakdown. Lead me not into temptation. Help me from, from engaging in evil, in gossip, in slander, in selfishness, in becoming offended with others, in, in immorality. You know something? Prayer is not about, I really want to go to heaven, but I know my life's not really lining up with the way I should be living. So I'll come to church on Sunday and I'll confess that I'm a, I'm a sinner and I'll get right with God. And then I'll go out and I'll just keep doing what I was doing Monday to Saturday. And then I'll come back on Sunday. It's almost like, like Andy Stanley says, you know, it's not like coming, emptying your sin bucket, getting right with God and then going out so you can fill your sin bucket up again. That is an offense to God. And that is not a life lived in your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Prayer is about declaring before God, I want to follow you. And I don't want to live a life that in any way dishonors you. I don't want to live a life in any way that displeases you. When I leave this prayer closet, help me to do that. That's what it's saying. Don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from such things. Deliver me from such evil. You know, when I leave this prayer closet, God, I really want, when I come back into this prayer closet, to go, hey, we did it. You and I together, we broke through. I didn't succumb to that. I didn't yield to that. You know, before I would have easily fallen into that trap, but I stepped over it and went around it and I avoided it. And, and we're doing so well together in our relationship because that's how God wants to walk with us. He wants to help us and ever present help in time of trouble. But he wants us to leave the prayer closet with a goal to be better, to do better, to achieve more with the strength of the Holy Spirit. That's what, that's what this is really all about. So, so when we get to this point, lead us not into temptation, you can say, God, I've declared your greatness. I know you're my God, you're my Savior, you're my Father. I've declared your greatness. I, I have declared my total submission to your will. I've declared that you are my provider. I've declared that I will forgive those on the, on the horizontal in the same way that, that, that I want you to forgive me. So now help me to no longer sin. Help me to no longer sin in those areas throughout my life that I might live a life day in, day out, more pleasing to you. It's not law, it's not religion, it's relationship. And it's the help of the Holy Spirit to make us into the image of Jesus, which is what we're called to be, his hands and his feet. When people look at you, do they see the kindness that they'd see in the face of Jesus? Do they see the gentleness that they'd see in the face of Jesus? Do they see the grace? Do they see the forgiveness? Do they see the love? Or do they see judgment? Do they see apathy? Do they see criticism? Do they see sin? undealt with in our life. Prayer is not leveraging God to bless my plans. It's about staying in tune with God and, to seek, and to seeking to walk in his will for my life. And Jesus said, if you pray this way, you'll have results. You'll have, maybe, maybe we haven't had our miracles because we're praying wrong. We're dealing with things wrong. If you think, oh, I only pray for five minutes and I don't know what else to say, follow this pattern. 
for the first 15 minutes. Get the best soul-stirring, emotion-stirring worship music that you can get that you just love and sit back. And while it's singing, just say, God, you're so great. God, I honor you. God, I love you. God, I declare your goodness. God, and then 15 minutes is already gone. And his presence will come if it's sincere. And then out of that, you start moving into, I surrender to you. It's a new day. Your mercy's in you every morning. Today, yesterday's gone. Tomorrow hasn't yet happened. Today's the day. And I surrender afresh to your will. If we live in sin from Monday to Saturday, I think, I think we're wasting our time praying at all. You know that? I really do. If we live in sin, blatant sin that we refuse to deal with, sleeping with your boyfriend, sleeping with your girlfriend, living life in a very self-centered way, cheating on your boss, ripping other people off, and you refuse to deal with that and bring that before God and you refuse to change. I, honestly, I don't think there's any time, any point praying at all because it's not according to the pattern he's taught us. But if you want results, get these things in alignment. You know, our needs are very important to God. They are. He is a father. He knows how to give good gifts to those who love him. The band can come back. He knows the stresses. He knows the pains. He knows the setbacks. He knows the challenges. He, he knows everything. And they are important to him. But he... He wants to meet those needs out of such a connected relationship. And when we declare that his kingdom, his is the kingdom, his is the power, his is the glory, we are declaring that whatever his answer is, we will trust him. You say, oh, I've tried all that you've said. Still nothing changed. But just maybe in that intimacy, he's trying to say to you, I hear you. I know about your wayward son. But do you trust me enough to actually work in his situation, perhaps differently to the way you'd want me to? Perhaps it'll take a bit longer to the way you'd like it to happen. Perhaps there are greater things at stake here. Perhaps there's a bigger picture. Are you happy to just trust him into my care? Are you okay if my answer is, I hear you ask for that need, but the answer is no at the moment because I've got a bigger thing in mind. And I just want you to trust me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to just stay close and just, just, just let me, you know, Abraham, go out to the place I'll show you. Where? Just go and I'll show you when you get there. It's like, are we able to trust God when that breakthrough isn't happening, when that oppression isn't lifting, when that stuff, you think, God, I've done everything. I've followed the pattern. I stand in faith that you are on my side. You are with me. And I trust God that you will fulfill whatever I have in your purposes because I'm surrendered to those purposes. I, I, I trust that you will fulfill them in your way and in your time. I, I think you live a life of prayer like that, you will get breakthroughs.